Chapter Fifty Two, Part Three of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Five. Chapter 52, Part 3 In a private condition, our desires are perpetually repressed by poverty and subordination, but the lives and labors of millions are devoted to the service of a despotic prince, whose laws are blindly obeyed, and whose wishes are instantly gratified. Our imagination is dazzled by the splendid preacher, and whatever may be the cool dictates of reason, there are few among us who would obstinately refuse a trial of the comforts and the cares of royalty. It may therefore be of some use to borrow the experience of the same Abdul Rahman, whose magnificence has perhaps excited our admiration and envy, and to transcribe an authentic memorial which was found in the closet of the deceased caliph. I have now reigned about fifty years in victory or peace, Beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure, have waited on my call, nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity. In this situation I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to fourteen. O man, place not thy confidence in this present world. The luxury of the caliphs, so useless to their private happiness, relaxed the nerves, and terminated the progress of the Arabian Empire. Temporal and spiritual conquest had been the sole occupation of the first successors of Mahomet, and after supplying themselves with the necessaries of life, the whole revenue was scrupulously devoted to that salutary work. The Abbasides were impoverished by the multitude of their wants, and their contempt of economy. Instead of pursuing the great object of ambition, their leisure, their affections, the powers of their mind, were diverted by pomp and pleasure, the rewards of valor were embezzled by women and Ainuchs, and the royal camp was encumbered by the luxury of the palace. A similar temper was diffused among the subjects of the caliph. Their stern enthusiasm was softened by time and prosperity. They sought riches in the occupations of industry fame in the pursuits of literature, and happiness in the tranquillity of domestic life. War was no longer the passion of the Saracens, and the increase of pay, the repetition of donatives, were insufficient to allure the posterity of those voluntary champions who had crowded to the standard of Abu Bekah and Omar for the hopes of spoil and of paradise. Under the reign of the Omeyads, the studies of the Moslems were confined to the interpretation of the Koran, and the eloquence and poetry of their native tongue. A people continually exposed to the dangers of the field must esteem the healing powers of medicine, or rather of surgery. But the starving physicians of Arabia murmured a complaint that exercise and temperance deprived them of the greatest part of their practice. After their civil and domestic wars, 
the subjects of the Abbasides, awakening from this mental lethargy, found leisure and felt curiosity for the acquisition of profound science. The spirit was first encouraged by the Caliph al-Mansur, who, besides his knowledge of the Mohammedan law, had applied himself with success to the study of astronomy. But when the scepter devolved to al-Mammon, the seventh of the Abbasides, he completed the designs of his grandfather, and invited the muses from their ancient seats, his ambassadors at Constantinople, his agents in Armenia, Syria, and Egypt, collected the volumes of Grecian science. At his command they were translated by the most skillful interpreters into the Arabic language. His subjects were exhorted assiduously to pursue these instructive writings, and the successor of Mohammed assisted with pleasure and modesty at the assemblies and disputations of the learned. He was not ignorant, says Abu Faragius that they are the elect of God, his best and most useful servants, whose lives are devoted to the improvement of their rational faculties. The main ambition of the Chinese or the Turks may glory in the industry of their hands or the indulgence of their brutal appetites. Yet these dexterous artists must view, with hopeless emulation, the hexagons and pyramids of the cells of a beehive, these fortitudinous heroes are awed by the superior fierceness of the lions and tigers, and in their amorous enjoyments they are much inferior to the vigor of the grossest and most sordid quadrupeds. The teachers of wisdom are the true luminaries and legislators of a world, which, without their aid, would again sink in ignorance and barbarism. The zeal and curiosity of Almamon were imitated by succeeding princes of the line of Abbas, their rivals, the Fatimids of Africa and the Omeyads of Spain, were the patrons of the learned, as well as the commanders of the faithful. The same royal prerogative was claimed by their independent emirs of the provinces, and their emulation diffused the taste and the rewards of science from Samarkand and Bokhara to Fez and Cordova. The vizier of the sultan consecrated a sum of two hundred thousand pieces of gold to the foundation of a college at Baghdad which he endowed with an annual revenue of 15,000 dinars. The fruits of instruction were communicated, perhaps at different times, to 6,000 disciples of every degree, from the son of the noble to that of the mechanic. A sufficient allowance was provided for the indigent scholars, and the merit or industry of the professors was repaid with adequate stipends. In every city the productions of Arabic literature were copied and collected by the curiosity of the studios and the vanity of the rich. A private doctor refused the invitation of the Sultan of Bokhara, because the carriage of his books would have required four hundred camels. The royal library of the Fatimids consisted of one hundred thousand manuscripts, elegantly transcribed and splendidly bound, which were lent, without jealousy or avarice, to the students of Cairo. Yet this collection must appear moderate, if we can believe that the Omeyads of Spain had formed a library of 600,000 volumes, 44 of which were employed in the mere catalogue. Their capital, Cordova, with the adjacent towns of Malaga, Almeria, and Murcia, had given birth to more than 300 writers, and above 70 public libraries were opened in the cities of the Andalusian kingdom. The age of Arabian learning continued about five hundred years, 
till the great eruption of the Mughals, and was coeval with the darkest and most slothful period of European annals. But since the sun of science has arisen in the West, it should seem that the Oriental studies have languished and declined. In the libraries of the Arabians, as in those of Europe, the far greater part of the innumerable volumes were possessed only of local value or imaginary merit. The shelves were crowded with orators and poets, whose style was adapted to the taste and manners of their countrymen, with general and partial histories, which each revolving generation supplied with a new harvest of persons and events, with codes and commentaries of jurisprudence, which derived their authority from the law of the prophet with the interpreters of the Koran and orthodox tradition, and with the whole theological tribe, polemics, mystics, scholastics, and moralists, the first or the last of writers, according to the different estimates of skeptics or believers. The works of speculation or science may be reduced to the four classes of philosophy, mathematics, astronomy, and physic. The sages of Greece were translated and illustrated in the Arabic language, and some treatises, now lost in the original, have been recovered in the versions of the East, which possessed and studied the writings of Aristotle and Plato, of Euclid and Apollonius, of Ptolemy, Hippocrates, and Galen. Among the ideal systems which have varied with the fashion of the times, the Arabians adopted the philosophy of the Stagirite, alike intelligible or alike obscure for the readers of every age. Plato wrote for the Athenians, and his allegorical genius is too closely blended with the language and religion of Greece. After the fall of that religion, the Peripatetics, emerging from their obscurity, prevailed in the controversies of the Oriental sects, and their founder was long afterwards restored by the Mohammedans of Spain to the Latin schools. The physics, both of the Academy and the Lycaeum, as they are built, not on observation, but on argument, have retarded the progress of real knowledge. The metaphysics of infinite or finite spirit have too often been enlisted in the service of superstition. But the human faculties are fortified by the art and practice of dialectics. The ten predicaments of Aristotle collect and methodize our ideas, and his syllogism is the keenest weapon of dispute. It was dexterously wielded in the schools of the Saracens, but as it is more effectual for the detection of errors than for the investigation of truth, it is not surprising that new generations of masters and disciples should still revolve in the same circle of logical argument. The mathematics are distinguished by a peculiar privilege, that, in the course of ages, they may always advance and can never recede. But the ancient geometry, if I am not misinformed, was resumed in the same state by the Italians of the 15th century, and whatever may be the origin of the name, the science of algebra is ascribed to the Grecian Diophantus by the modest testimony of the Arabs themselves. They cultivated with more success the sublime science of astronomy, which elevates the mind of man to disdain his diminutive planet and momentary existence. The costly instruments of observation were supplied by the Caliph al-Mamun, and the land of the Chaldeans still afforded the same spacious level, the same unclouded horizon. In the plains of Sinar, and a second time in those of Kaffa, 
his mathematicians accurately measured a degree of the great circle of the earth and determined at twenty-four thousand miles the entire circumference of our globe from the reign of the abbasides to that of the grandchildren of tamerlane the stars without the aid of glasses were diligently observed and the astronomical tables of baghdad spain and samarcand correct some minute errors without daring to renounce the hypothesis of ptolemy without advancing a step towards the discovery of the solar system in the eastern courts the truth of science could be recommended only by ignorance and folly and the astronomer would have been disregarded had he not debased his wisdom or honesty by the vain predictions of astrology but in the science of medicine the arabians have been deservedly applauded the names of mesua and geba of rasis and avicenna are ranked with the grecian masters and the city of baghdad eight hundred and sixty physicians were licensed to exercise their lucrative profession in spain the life of the catholic princes was entrusted to the skill of the saracens and the school of salerno their legitimate offspring revived in italy and europe the precepts of the healing art the success of each professor must have been influenced by personal and accidental causes but we may form a less fanciful estimate of their general knowledge of anatomy botany and chemistry the threefold basis of their theory and practice a superstitious reverence for the dead confined both the greeks and the arabians to the dissection of apes and quadrupeds the more solid and visible parts were known in the time of galen and the finer scrutiny of the human frame was reserved for the microscope and the injections of modern artists botany is an active science and the discoveries of the torrid zone might enrich in the herbal of dioscorides with two thousand plants some traditionary knowledge might be secreted in the temples and monasteries in egypt much useful experience had been acquired in the practice of arts and manufactures but the science of chemistry owes its origin and improvement to the industry of the saracens they first invented and named the alembic for the purposes of distillation analyzed the substances of the three kingdoms of nature tried the distinction and affinities of alkalis and acids and converted the poisonous minerals into soft and salutary medicines but the most eager search of arabian chemistry was the transmutation of metals and the elixir of immortal health the reason and the fortunes of thousands were evaporated in the in the crucibles of alchemy and the consummation of a great work was promoted by the worthy aid of mystery fable and superstition but the moslems deprived themselves of the principal benefits of a familiar intercourse with greece and rome the knowledge of antiquity the purity of taste and the freedom of thought confident in the riches of their native tongue the arabians disdained the study of any foreign idiom the greek interpreters were chosen among their christian subjects they formed their translations sometimes on the original text more frequently perhaps on a syriac version and in the crowd of astronomers and physicians there is no example of a poet an orator or even an historian being taught to speak the language of the saracens the mythology of homer would have provoked the adherence of those stern fanatics they possessed in lazy ignorance the colonies of the macedonians and the provinces of carthage and rome 
the heroes of Plutarch and Levi, were buried in oblivion, and the history of the world before Mahomet was reduced to a short legend of the patriarchs, the prophets, and the Persian kings. Our education in the Greek and Latin schools may have fixed in our minds a standard of exclusive taste, and I am not forward to condemn the literature and judgment of nations, of whose language I am ignorant. Yet I know that the classics have much to teach, and I believe that the Orientals have much to learn. The temperate dignity of style, the graceful proportions of art, the forms of visible and intellectual beauty, the just delineation of character and passion, the rhetoric of narrative and argument, the regular fabric of epic and dramatic poetry. The influence of truth and reason is of a less ambiguous complexion. The philosophers of Athens and Rome enjoyed the blessings and asserted the rights of civil and religious freedom. Their moral and political writings might have gradually unlocked the fetters of Eastern despotism, diffused a liberal spirit of inquiry and toleration, and encouraged the Arabian sage to suspect that their caliph was a tyrant and their prophet an impostor. The instinct of superstition was alarmed by the introduction even of the abstract sciences, and the more rigid doctors of the law condemned the rash and pernicious curiosity of Al-Mamon. To the thirst of martyrdom, the vision of paradise, and the belief of predestination, we must ascribe the invincible enthusiasm of the prince and people. And the sword of the Saracens became less formidable when their youth was drawn away from the camp to the college, when the armies of the faithful presumed to read and to reflect. Yet the foolish vanity of the Greeks was jealous of their studies, and reluctantly imparted the sacred fire to the barbarians of the East. In the bloody conflict of the Omeyids and Abbasides, the Greeks had stolen the opportunity of avenging their wrongs and enlarging their limits. But a severe retribution was exacted by Mohadi, the third caliph of the new dynasty, who seized, in his turn, the favorable opportunity, while a woman and a child, Irene and Constantine, were seated of the Byzantine throne. An army of ninety-five thousand Persians and Arabs was sent from the Tigris to the Thracian Bosphorus, under the command of Harun, or Aaron, the second son of the commander of the faithful. His encamp on the opposite heights of Chrysopolis, or Scutari, informed Irene, in her palace of Constantinople, of the loss of her troops and provinces. With the consent or connivance of their sovereign, her ministers subscribed an ignominious peace, and the exchange of some royal gifts could not disguise the annual tribute of seventy thousand dinars of gold, which was imposed of the Roman Empire. The Saracens had too rashly advanced into the midst of a distant and hostile land, their retreat was solicited by the promise of faithful guides and plentiful markets, and not a Greek had courage to whisper that their weary forces might be surrounded and destroyed in their necessary passage between a slippery mountain and the river Sangarius. Five years after this expedition, Harun ascended the throne of his father and his elder brother, the most powerful and vigorous monarch of his race, illustrious to the west as the ally of Charlemagne, and familiar to the most childish readers, as a perpetual hero of the Arabian tales. His title to the name of Al-Rashid, the Just, is sullied by the extirpation of the generous 
perhaps the innocent Barmecides. Yet he could listen to the complaint of the poor widow, who had been pillaged by his troops, and who dared, in a passage of a Koran, to threaten the inattentive despot with the judgment of God and posterity. His court was adorned with luxury and science, but in a reign of three and twenty years, Harun repeatedly visited these provinces from Khorasan to Egypt. Nine times he performed the pilgrimage to Mecca. Eight times he invaded the territories of the Romans, and as often as they declined the payment of the tribute, they were taught to feel that a month of depredation was more costly than a year of submission. But when the unnatural mother of Constantine was deposed and banished, her successor, Nicephorus, resolved to obliterate this badge of servitude and disgrace. The epistle of the emperor to the caliph was pointed with an allusion to the game of chess, which had already spread from Persia to Greece. The queen, he spoke of Irene, considered you as a rook and herself as a pawn. That pusillanimous female submitted to pay a tribute, the double of which she ought to have exacted from the barbarians. Restore therefore the fruits of your injustice, or abide the determination of the sword. At these words the ambassadors cast a bundle of swords before the foot of the throne. The caliph smiled at the menace, and drawing his scimitar, Samsamah, a weapon of historic or fabulous renown, he cut asunder the feeble arms of the Greeks, without turning the edge or endangering the temper of his blade. He then dictated an epistle of tremendous brevity. In the name of the most merciful God, Harun al-Rashid, commander of the faithful, to Nicephorus, the Roman dog, I have read that letter of thy son of an unbelieving mother. Thou shalt not hear, thou shalt behold my reply. It was written in characters of blood and fire on the plains of Phrygia, and the warlike celerity of the Arabs could only be checked by the arts of deceit and the show of repentance. The triumphant caliph retired, after the fatigues of the campaign, to his favorite palace of Raqqa on the Euphrates, but the distance of five hundred miles, and the inclemency of the season, encouraged his adversary to violate the peace. Nicephorus was astonished by the bold and rapid march of the commander of the faithful, who repassed in the depths of winter the snows of Mount Taurus, his stratagems of policy and war were exhausted, and the perfidious Greek escaped with three wounds from a field of battle overspread with forty thousand of his subjects. Yet the emperor was ashamed of submission, and the caliph was resolved on victory. One hundred and thirty-five thousand regular soldiers received pay, and were inscribed in the military roll, and about three hundred thousand persons of every denomination marched under the black standard of the Abbasides. They swept the surface of Asia Minor far beyond Tiana and Ancura, and invested the Pontic Heraclea, once a flourishing state, now a paltry town, at that time capable of sustaining, in her antique walls, a month's siege against the forces of the East. The ruin was complete, the spoil was ample, but if Harun had been conversant with Grecian story, he would have regretted the statue of Hercules, whose attributes, the club, the bow, the quiver, and the lion's hide, were sculptured in massy gold. The progress of desolation by sea and land, from the Oxine to the Isle of Cyprus, compelled the Emperor Nicephorus 
to retract his haughty defiance. In the new treaty, the ruins of Heraclea were left forever as a lesson and a trophy, and the coin of the tribute was marked with the image and superscription of Harun and his three sons. Yet this plurality of lords might contribute to remove the dishonor of the Roman name. After the death of their father, the heirs of the caliph were involved in civil discord, and the conqueror, the liberal Al-Mamun, was sufficiently engaged in the restoration of domestic peace and the introduction of foreign science. End of the chapter 52, part 3